what the heck did these disciples do to create such a riot? Did they start a riot? Did they start a fight? Did they like start a scene? Did they order a keg and throw a party while Jesus was gone? Like what did they do to create such a commotion? And what was in their mind was probably Moses coming down the mountain at Mount Sinai and there's a crowd or a commotion dancing around a golden calf. In fact, Mark is using language to bring that to mind. And uh, they think that like Moses, Jesus is going to have it. Like he is going to be so angry. If you remember, Moses broke the, the, the tablets, the Ten Commandments were on. He got angry. He was frustrated with everyone. And they think that this is exactly what Jesus is about to do. It, it's like when you're a kid and uh, maybe you go out with your parents and you leave your sibling at home, okay? And uh, you come home after a few hours and your sibling totally did something they were not supposed to do. And so in your self-righteous spirit, you look at your brother or sister and you say, we've only been gone a few hours and this is what you do? Mother, punish him, right? Like this is probably what they're thinking. They think that Jesus, like Moses, is going to be angry and take it out on the disciples. Very next verse, verse 15, we read these words. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He answered. A man in the crowd answered, teacher or rabbi, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So apparently the disciples have been here probably, I would assume, for, for moments, for hours. We, we're not sure, but a good amount of time, long enough for a crowd to form. And as they're here, there's a boy who's, who's possessed by an unclean spirit. And these disciples have tried everything in the book. They have yelled. They have prayed. They have sung Bethel worship songs. They have done everything they could possibly think of. And nothing is working. This demon is not coming out of this boy. This doesn't make sense. At least it shouldn't if you're a good student of Mark's gospel. Because in Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus gave the disciples authority to drive out demons. In Mark chapter 3, we read, When Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him, he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus seems to think that his disciples can cast out demons. In fact, Jesus gave his disciples authority to drive out demons. They have done this before. In Mark chapter 6, we read that the disciples do just this. They go out, preach the gospel to the poor, heal the sick, and drive out demons. They had authority to do this. They should have been able to, but they couldn't. I think the question behind the question is, why was Jesus able to and they weren't? What was so different about Jesus that he was able to drive out this demon when his disciples, who he gave the very same power to do so, couldn't? verse 19, it continues and says, you unbelieving generation, these are the encouraging words of Jesus. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. So when the, the demon saw Jesus, it freaks out. It is terrified. It starts rolling on the ground and convulsing and causing a scene. This is a demon in total terror. But what does it say in verse 15? It says, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, 
they were overwhelmed, not with fear, but with wonder. The question is, what was there about Jesus that when people saw it made them either respond in fear or amazement? What was it that they saw in Jesus that made them respond so abruptly, so obnoxiously to the presence of Jesus? What we, what we could conclude from uh, Mark's words here is there was something about Jesus. There was a level of authority that Jesus had, and according to Mark, you could see it. There was a level of authority that Jesus had, and it was visible to the naked eye. You could see it. Verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Guys, this is a wild scene, right? So this boy is literally convulsing and shaking on the ground. This boy is literally like going berserk on the floor. And Jesus very calmly looks at the father and says, yeah, so like, how long has he been like this? Yeah, does this happen like all the time? Like, how bad is it? And the father's like, oh, yeah, like sometimes it tries to kill him. He's like, oh, okay, like, let's do something. And, And like, all of a sudden, the father's like, okay, enough is enough. Jesus, can you do anything? Do you possess any power that is greater than your disciples to cast out this demon? And Jesus' response in 23 is this. If you can, said Jesus, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the, boy, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Now we look at these words of doubt and maybe we're tempted to look down at this father because he's a skeptic. We look down at him or, or maybe we judge him, but these are not the words of someone who's opposed to the work and person of Jesus. This is a worn out, beat down, burnt out father. This is somebody who has looked to everyone for answers. He has, he has searched down every single avenue that he could possibly do. And he has been let down time and time again. His heart has literally been torn out of his chest a thousand times. He's gone to the doctors and best physicians of his time and they couldn't do anything. He's gone to the Levitical priests and they couldn't do anything. And so in a last ditch effort, he hears about a faith healer in Galilee and he goes to him because there's a chance, there's a small hope, just a chance that maybe Jesus is different and maybe Jesus can do something. See, this is not the, the, the approach of somebody who's opposed to the work of Jesus or somebody who's just being critical for the sake of it. This is somebody who's been let down time And time again, this is a father who's not sure if Jesus can help him. And Jesus' response is this. If I can, of course I can. This is who I am. This is what I came to do. Of course I can. Elsewhere, Elsewhere, these words come out of the mouth of Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If I can, of course I can. This is who I am and this is what I came to do. See, this father is desperate. He is desperate for God to move and desperation is often the platform for breakthrough because desperation pushes us to our knees or we have no other option to cry out to our father in heaven, if you can help me, if you are able. And this is exactly what this father does. He looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Can we be honest enough in this room to say that we have beliefs and we have doubts? That we have answers as well as questions that we believe that God is able and yet wonder if he'll ever come through. The Christian life is not 
it can, and cannot be reduced to certainty. If it could, God would become far too small. If you have ever experienced learning about some, something about God before, the moment you, you receive a revelation of God or from his word, in that moment, it feels like you have never learned anything before in your entire life. If you have ever experienced the furious love of God focused towards your direction, it feels in that moment that you have never known love ever before in your life. See, God is too big to be contained by our small categories and limitations. Therefore, the Christian life will always feel like we are both full of faith and the worst of skeptics. We feel as if God is the lover of our souls and yet as if at the same time, we are the worst of harlots. And so we must be able to say, just like this father, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. In verse 25, it says, when Jesus saw the crowd was running to him, running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind, this kind can only come out by prayer. So afterward, the disciples feel totally defeated. They feel like total failures. See, Jesus had given them authority. He expected them to be able to drive out demons. He sent them out to do that, both in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6. And here in Mark chapter 9, they feel like failures. Why couldn't they drive it out? Imagine them just standing before that boy as he's convulsing on the ground, feeling totally helpless. Like this boy obviously needs their help. He, he, he looks dead like a corpse on the ground, and they can't do anything to help his situation. They should have been able to. Why was this time different? Why couldn't they drive it out? So after dinner, the plates are being cleared from the table and you can hear the silence in that room. It was so thick. And all the disciples feel totally defeated and they're speechless. And all of a sudden after dinner, one of the disciples pipes up and says, Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive this one out? And Jesus looks at them and says, this kind, this kind only comes out through prayer. Some manuscripts add through prayer and fasting. Now, I'm sure if, if Peter was there, he probably stood up and was frustrated and said, that's great to know. Some only come out through prayer and fasting. Are you kidding me, Jesus? That would have been really great to know before you sent us out in front of that entire crowd to look like total idiots in front of everyone. Some only come out through prayer and fasting. Why didn't you just tell us that, Jesus? Right? What I never noticed before is that Jesus doesn't pray or fast when he drives this demon out. He doesn't pray. He doesn't talk to the Father. He doesn't fast. He just tells the demon to leave. So if it's true that there are kinds of demons that only come out through prayer and fasting, then why doesn't Jesus smoke what he's selling and pray and fast while he's casting out this demon? Why doesn't Jesus take his advice and, and pray and fast? So what is going on here? Why is, it, why is there such a, a large inconsistency here? What if Jesus is getting at something else? What if Jesus is saying that prayer and fasting developed the kind of spiritual authority to drive out this kind of demon? Like the kind 
of demon that you're facing is too big, it's too powerful, it's too strong, and you need authority to drive it out. And what if that only happens, that we only receive this level of authority when we pray and fast? See, what the disciples needed wasn't a better strategy for exorcism. They didn't need to gather the boys together and say, okay, let's, let's put some blueprints together and figure out a better way to, to, to plan this out and to do this. What they needed wasn't a better plan or technique, but spiritual authority. What if what they needed was the power to touch heaven and change the outcomes of earth? And what if that only happens through spiritual authority? What if Jesus was onto something and intimacy leads to authority? There's a story I love from the book of Acts, um, chapter 19, where these, these seven sons of Sceva try to go out and do some exorcisms of their own. It goes terribly wrong. Uh, this is what it says in, in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 13. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. Sounds like a good idea. Tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Okay. Uh, they would say in the name of the Jesus, it sounds like they watched too much Fox News, the Facebook or the Walmart, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them. That's not what you want to happen, okay? Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who the heck are you guys? The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they rendered the house naked and bleeding. Like that sounds amazing, right? You know you've lost the fight if you run out of the house with your pants off and bleeding, right? Like who wants to join our prayer ministry after that naked and bleeding? But here's what we need to see. There is no authority without intimacy. This is what Jesus is getting at. There's no authority without intimacy. How did they invoke the name of Jesus? They called on the one whom Paul preaches. They're referring to the name of Jesus as if he's one that they only know about, as if he's the only one they've ever heard about, but they don't know him. They're invoking a name of somebody that they have no intimacy with, and so they have no authority. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. This is not a tag on to the end of our prayers where we say, in the name of Jesus, it's like a way to close our prayers. This is an ancient way of praying that comes from a Hebrew thought where a name meant somebody's character and authority. And they're going about uh, invoking the name of Jesus to claim his authority and character, but they're doing it with somebody that they have no intimacy with. And there is no intimacy without authority. So it didn't matter how hard they tried. It didn't matter how many times they said the name of Jesus. It did not work because they had no intimacy with him. And it is intimacy that leads to authority. And I think the scary thing for us is that we can claim the name of Jesus and we can even claim the name of the one that your, your pastor preaches, but you yourself might not have authority because you have no intimacy with him. According to Jesus, it is intimacy that leads to authority. See, Luke goes out of his way over and over to tell us that Jesus, quote, often withdrew to the lonely places and prayed. In Luke 5, 16, we read those exact words. So Jesus would regularly get alone with God the Father and spend time with him in prayer. Think about how mind-bending that is, that the God of the universe, the very almighty God who created the universe with the words of his mouth, needed to get alone with his Father in prayer regularly. Why? Because Jesus believed that intimacy leads to authority. See, the disciples, according to Jesus, were no match for this kind of demon. It was beyond them. It was too big. And according to Jesus, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. It was beyond them, too big, too powerful. 
See, I imagine that Peter, James, and John thought they probably needed to go back up the mountain to have another spiritual high. They needed another getaway with Jesus. They needed another moment of spiritual transcendence. This is what they needed. They thought they needed to encounter the transfiguration once more. They might even be tempted to believe that being there in the valley wasn't a good thing for them. But what if the solution for them wasn't going back up the mountain, but meeting with God in the valley? See, what they needed wasn't more moments of transcendence on the mountain. What they needed was mundane transcendence. We need to learn to be with God in the mundane moments of the valley. See, this story, I believe, confronts our ideas of God. It confronts the notion that God is only found in the stadiums at YWAM or at a spiritual high at your youth camp. It, it, it confronts the idea that God is only in the impressive and the big and, and, and the incredible. He's only found on the mountain. But it proclaims to us loud and clear that God is found in all of the places that you and I have ignored. God is found where we least expect. He is found in the womb of a teenage girl, in a manger, in the body of an unimpressive Middle Eastern man. God is found when you're doing the dishes in the kitchen, when you feel totally alone and abandoned. God is found in the midst of the hurt of a divorce, in your old age, and in the seemingly meaningless and mundane moments of life. See, Jesus' advice to his disciples is not to run away up to the mountain. It's not to run away from the unholy moments, the mundane moments of life, to have an escape back up the mountain. His advice is not to go back to youth camp or back to YWAM or to seek some other spiritual high. Jesus' advice is that this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. He's inviting us to be with him in the everyday moments of the valley, to learn to notice him in the simplest of moments, because what we think we need is power. We need to get power because we can, if we can exert power over others, we, we can dominate and we, we can do the things that we need. What we need is power. But what Jesus says is you don't need power. You need intimacy. And if you make power your goal, you will lose both authority and intimacy. But if intimacy is your goal, you will get both and a whole lot more because intimacy leads to authority. I think some of the most beautiful words come from a long time ago, from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who once po uh, poetically wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes, the rest sit round and pluck, pluck blackberries. What if she's right? What if earth is crammed with heaven? What if every common bush is afire with God, and we just need to notice God in the mundane moments of life? See, what if what we need is the transfiguration of the ordinary, not just the mountaintop moments of transfiguration? See, what it's, what, it, what it's about is seeing God in the everyday stuff of life rather than chasing the wind of the next spiritual high. What if we must simply learn, like Jesus, to get away with the Father regularly in prayer, right in the midst of the valley of everyday life? See, maybe like you, somebody told you that your, that your spiritual high from youth camp would last forever. They told you that you'd be a world changer, that you had to make every second count because God doesn't want you to live a small life. Maybe somebody told you that if you follow Jesus, you, you'll hear God speaking to you and you'll never have a shortage of miracles to experience. Maybe they told you that your life would work out fine. You just have to follow Jesus. And life is just one spiritual high to another. And it seemed like that advice worked for everyone else but you. So you packed up your things and you went to Bible college. And then years later, you found yourself packing those very same things into your car and driving across Canada in pursuit of yet another spiritual high. 
But what you realize is it didn't matter too much where you went. Your mundane life followed you. Now that might not be your story, but swap out a a few key details and you will find your story right there too. So what happens when your life comes crashing apart when you come down the mountain and you're confronted with the harsh realities of life? What happens when you feel God's absence more than his presence? What happens when your marriage dies or your kid gets a diagnosis and the only thing left on your lips is why couldn't I drive it out? What if our God is found right there too? Right there in the valley, right there in the mundane moments that seem insignificant and chaotic, What if God is to be found right there? Not up on the mountain, but right here in the the, the valley of your life. What if our God actually descends from the mountain into the mundane moments of the valley? What if God became human, not just to save us in the future, but to be with us in the present? What What if God is to be found in the moments of mundane transcendence? And my question for us this morning is, will we be brave enough to find out Will we be courageous enough to be with God in our mundane lives? The invitation of Jesus in this story is to learn to be with him in the ordinary moments of life. Day in and day out, Jesus would regularly get alone with the Father and pray. Could we be brave enough to take that invitation of Jesus seriously? Because one of the things that I love is that in the Gospel of Luke, I believe chapter 5, Luke tells us that Jesus left the wilderness where he spent 40 days praying and fasting with the Father, exactly what he commands his disciples to do. Luke tells us, I believe in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, that Jesus left that place in the power of the Holy Spirit. There was something that happened when Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and fasted and prayed. And I'll tell you, it probably wasn't amazing. He probably didn't feel encouraged when he was tired and hungry and lonely. But there in that wilderness, as he was fasting and praying with the Father, something happened that Luke tells us that he left in the power of of the Holy Spirit. Will we be brave enough to meet with God there in the valley, there in the Aramos, in the desert where it feels like God is absent? But could we realize and discover that God is present there? I think the invitation of Jesus is important because one day, most likely, there will be something that is too big for you, a certain kind that comes out only through prayer and fasting And somehow you may realize that you have the authority to face it because of the thousand moments you wasted with Jesus, because intimacy leads to authority. I think it's significant that Jesus himself spent 30 years in obscurity. Jesus lived 30 years of his life that seemed ordinary and mundane, and most of us would write it off as a waste. We idolize marriage in our culture. Jesus never got married. We idolize success and vocational uh, uh, I don't know, success or whatever. And we obsess over this. And Jesus didn't do any of it. He left his carpentry job to wander around the Middle East with 12 teenage boys. Jesus wasted his life for 30 years. But somehow those 30 years were not wasted whatsoever because for 30 years he wasted time with his father in prayer. For 30 years, God used those moments to build up a level of spiritual authority he needed to make every demon tremble. He he created in those moments of, of wilderness and obscurity with the Father a level of authority where he could face your cross, where he could tear apart your sin and take it all the way to the depths of hell and there destroy it and overcome the evil one. See, it is only through being with God in intimacy that we possess the level of authority 
that we will need to face whatever comes our way. And there are a lot of things in our life that feel like in the moment, nothing is happening. Can I speak to all the parents in the room? Parenting probably feels like nothing is happening. Day after day, you care for your child and instruct them and they're like chaos, right? You know this is true. You feel like day after day, you get, through blood, sweat, and tears, you parent your children and nothing happens. And all of a sudden, years later, you realize that all of that work put together created something beautiful. If you've ever been to the gym before, I clearly have not been going that often, right? I've been inconsistent. But if you go to the gym, okay, do as I say, not as I do. If you go to the gym, it'll feel like you are showing up day after day after day, working hard, and you look into the mirror and you wonder, is anything I'm doing working? Am I making any progress whatsoever? But it's only after years of consistency will you look in that mirror and realize that it all paid off. It's only after you see all of those thousand mundane moments put together that you see your child standing before you and you're proud. It's only after decades of consistent showing up to the gym day after day and doing meaningless mundane things over and over and over. And when you see those thousand moments all together, will you see the difference? And I think the Christian life is the same way. I think we need to be honest enough and say that it doesn't always feel spectacular doesn't always feel like a mountaintop experience, like, like God is transfiguring before our eyes. But it's those thousands of mundane moments in prayer added together that leads to the authority that we long for. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, some only come out through prayer and fasting. So Port Gales Church, will we be bold enough to carve out time to waste time with Jesus Will we be audacious enough to rework our schedules and rhythms to make space for spending time with God in prayer? Will we become the kind of people who face life's big moments and demons because of the thousand moments we spent with Jesus in prayer? Because I'm convinced that only intimacy leads to authority. And I think Jesus is as well. So the invitation of Jesus this morning is come get away with me and you'll recover your life. Get away with me in the Ramos. Spend time with me. And it might all, not always feel like a mountaintop experience, but there in the valley, in the wilderness, in obscurity, and in the mundane moments of life, I will pour out my spirit in you and you will have the authority to do what I've called you to do. So would you stand with me as we close?